Our sermon passage this morning is Psalm 8, which you can find on page 450 of the Blue Bibles. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you matter? Depending on who you are this morning, and that question will hit differently. So for some of us, we have a strong sense of significance. We have a deep inner confidence that we do matter. Maybe it's because we're popular, or we've achieved a lot in our lives so far, or maybe we've just come from a loving home. Maybe we just can't really even explain it. We've just always kind of felt valuable and important. But for others, we feel the opposite. We feel worthless and inconsequential. Our lives just don't appear to have any meaning. Maybe it's because we've never been popular. We've not achieved a whole lot. Or we haven't felt particularly loved by others. Or again, maybe we just can't even explain it, but we've always just felt a little insignificant. We might even wonder if things would be better if we went around. But whoever you are this morning, you at least want your life to matter, don't you? So it would be really good news if you knew that you were significant. We'd all like to leave here today knowing that our lives were valuable and important. Do you matter? Is your life significant? The answer to that question makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It impacts our reason for getting up each morning. It influences the way we deal with failure. It shapes our relationships with one another. It it affects the value we put on things like money and possessions and achievements and reputation. Whether you realize it or not, We're all trying to answer that question. We need to answer that question. Well, if we want to answer the question, do we matter? We need to begin not with us, but with God. And this brings us to Psalm 8 this morning. Psalm 8 is the very first psalm of praise that we find in the Bible. It celebrates the great creative work of God. And it's really impressive in its scope. You know, it's only nine verses. However, it takes us from the heavens to the earth. 
It takes us all the way back to the beginning when God first created the world. And then it, as the New Testament makes clear, it, it takes us on to the very end. As the author of Hebrews puts it in chapter 2, Psalm 8 points us to the world to come. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Psalm 8 under two headings. We're going to begin by seeing the insignificance of man, the insignificance of man. So this is a psalm, first and foremost, about the majestic splendor of God. So you'll notice there that the psalm is, is bookended by the phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David uses two names to identify God there. So do you see how Lord is fully capitalized right at the beginning? The, the Hebrew word there, as many of you know, is the word Yahweh. Uh, this was God's revealed name to Moses at the burning bush. The, the literal translation of this word is something like, I am what I am. In other words, God is who he is. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. He is eternal and incomparable. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. He is unchanging and infinite. But David also refers to God as Lord with a capital L and lowercase o-r-d. The Hebrew word there is the word Adonai. It means ruler or master. In other words, God is the king of the universe. And David proclaims, how majestic is your name in all the earth? The word majestic there refers to God's great power. The whole earth testifies to God's omnipotent majesty. The chorus of creation proclaims his might. And at the end of verse one there, David continues, you have set your glory above the heavens. The word glory there is probably better translated as splendor. The idea is that God's infinite beauty and perfection are on display in creation. The word for heavens there just simply means skies. In other words, if you want to see God's majestic splendor, just look up. Look at the clouds, the stars, the moon. God's splendor is visible. David says something similar in Psalm 19 verse 1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In, in Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul takes hold of this reality and then he applies it to humanity's unbelief. His point is basically that, that God's existence is, is so obvious to everyone that it takes a willing suppression of the truth to deny his existence. He says, beginning in verse 19 of chapter one, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In verse two of Psalm eight, David highlights a surprising evidence of God's majesty. He, he takes us from the sky to the stroller. Verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. How does God defeat his enemies? 
How does he overcome his foes? How does he silence those who are bent on vengeance against him and his people? He does so through children. God takes the weakest and most vulnerable and he uses them to overcome his enemies. And their weapons of victory are not, not swords or bullets. No, it's their mouths. In the context of the Psalms, this is a reference to praise. Praise offered to God. This is how God displays his majestic power. He triumphs over his foes through the worship of children. He, he takes the weak things of the world to shame the strong. We'll think more about this concept later. Then in verse 3, David goes for an evening stroll. It's one of those gloriously clear nights. that The black sky is, is illuminated by the brightness of the moon and, and countless shining stars. And, and as he looks up, he, he's overwhelmed. He, he gets this glimpse of, of the gulf between him and God. The, the, the finite is confronted with the infinite. The the, the, the transience with the eternal, the, cre the creature with the creator. Look at verse three. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David is, is gobsmacked by the majesty of God. He, he calls the moon and the stars the work of your fingers. The idea is that, that God didn't need to exert great strength to fashion the stars. He, he didn't need to kind of like roll up his sleeves and, and, and put some elbow grease into it. No, metaphorically speaking, his shoulders and his arms just weren't required. He simply used his fingers like, like, a, like a small lump of, of clay in the, in the hands of a potter. God molded the moon and the stars and set them in place. This is how big and immense the Lord is. Just, just think about like when you typically use your, your fingers to make things. Like typically you use your fingers to, to make things that are small, don't you? So you, you're kind of building Lego or you're decorating a cookie or you're trying to, you're trying to sew some clothes because there's a little rip. Well, the stars, which are unfathomably big to us, are, are finger work for God. In light of this, David, he just feels so insignificant. Look at verse four again. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Nature, it, it has a way of making us feel small, doesn't it? So have you ever like hiked on a snow-capped mountain or been at sea during a ferocious storm? Have you ever been on a beach during a sunset or, or just stood at the precipice of the Grand Canyon? If so, you've likely experienced that shrinking feeling. But the, the moon and the stars are particularly humbling. Due to advances in science, we have an even greater perspective than David, don't we? So we've now actually been to the moon. Neil Armstrong was the first astronaut to step foot on the moon with the whole world watching him as he made one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. Can you imagine the significance that he must have felt in that moment? Or did he? Reflecting on his voyage to space, Neil Armstrong said the following. He said, it suddenly struck me that the tiny pea 
pretty and blue was the earth. I, I put out my thumb and I, 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 I shut one eye and my thumb blotted out planet Earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small. And then there are the stars. The closest star to the Earth is the sun. The sun is over a million times bigger than planet Earth. Uh, to just give you an idea of, of how big that is, just imagine the Earth as a golf ball. So I brought a golf ball this morning. It's got a picture of Mickey Mouse on. But So imagine the Earth is a sun. Okay, kids, any kids here? I want you to try and find yourself on this golf ball. Okay, put up your hand if you found yourself. No, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you're so small. Like if the Earth was a golf ball, then the sun would be around 15 feet, which means nothing to you. But I was trying to measure this screen before, and this screen behind me is 14 feet by 8 feet. So the sun would be way bigger than this screen right behind me. That's how small the Earth is compared to the sun. You could fit 1.3 million Earths inside the sun. Here's a picture to give you some perspective. I mean, how massive is the sun? I didn't see the sun until I came over here, but it's, it's there. <laughs> but here's the thing, right? The sun is tiny compared to other stars in the universe. So scientists estimate that there are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on Earth. The biggest star in the universe that we know of, at least, is called UI Scuti, which is a kind of funny name, but there you go. This star, this star is 1,700 times larger than our sun. Let me put that in, into perspective for you. You could fit nearly 5 billion suns inside UI Scuti. Again, we've got a picture for you to give you some perspective. So, like, like if the Earth was a golf ball, then our sun would be maybe around the size of this wall behind me, a bit smaller. UI Scuti would be about the size of Mount Everest. You could fit over six quadrillion Earths inside UI Scuti. Do you know how fast light is? Light can travel around the Earth seven times in one second. One, seven times it went round. Two, 14 times. It, light is so fast. Do you know how long it takes light to travel around UI Scuti? 7.7 hours just to travel around it once. Now listen, God has fashioned UI Scooty with his fingers. That's how big God is. Doesn't that make you feel small? Insignificant? Who are we that God would take notice of us? If the sun, if the, if the moon and the stars are small in God's hands, what is man in God's sight? If UI Scooty is tiny to God, how minuscule and insignificant must we be? Why, would, why on earth would God ever think of us? You can take the picture down now, thanks. You know, sin, sin has this, this way of puffing us up, doesn't it? 
right? It, it gives us delusions of grandeur. It, we think of ourselves as the biggest star in the universe with everything else revolving around us. Sin makes us feel more important, more superior, more significant than others. Sin makes us feel significant, but it's a significance that's rooted in pride. We draw our sense of significance from, from our good looks or our popularity, our intelligence, our talents, our achievements, our wealth, our status, our morality, things like that. Sin makes us feel significant, but it's, it's not a significance that comes from God. It doesn't have any basis. It's also a fragile significance. It can quickly disappear when life takes a bad turn, when the things that make us feel significant suddenly disappear. Sin makes us feel really big, and it makes God seem really small. But the skies, they give us a shot of spiritual sanity. The heavens expose our smallness and insignificance. Who are we that God would give us a second thought? And that brings us to our second point this morning. The significance of man. The significance of man. David answers his own question in verse 5. Astonishingly, despite our apparent insignificance, we, we actually have extreme significance to God. David makes an astounding assertion in verse 5, an assertion we find throughout the Bible. He tells us that humanity is the crown of God's creation. Look at verse 5. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. There's a translation difficulty with the word heavenly beings there. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. Depending on the context, it can mean God or gods. But it was often used in reference to angels. The Greek translation of the Old Testament and even Hebrews chapter 2 interprets our passage this way. The idea is that God created human beings a little lower than angels. Angels are heavenly beings. Humans are earthly beings. Yet God has crowned us with glory and honor. David seems to be taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. We're told there that when God created humanity, he created us in his image. We were made to reflect his glory in a way that, that, that nothing else in creation does. This gives human beings an inherent dignity and worth. It's why every person deserves to be treated equally, regardless of, of age or gender or ethnicity or abilities or socioeconomic status or, or anything else that makes us different. We're equal because we're all made in God's image. It's worth noticing the structure of this psalm. So as we've already noted, it's bookended by God's glory. You see that in verses 1 and 9. Yet the middle verse is about man's glory. And that's interesting. In a psalm that praises God's majestic splendor, we find man, human beings at the center. In other words, human beings are the center of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of God's handiwork. His majestic splendor is on display in his image bearers. That's the point. Just think about how surprising this is, by the way. 
Despite the vastness of the universe, God has zeroed in on humanity. We are smaller than specks, but God has literally taken us from the dust, Genesis 2-7, and he's crowned us with glory and honor. David continues in verses six to eight. He says, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Again, David's taken us back to Genesis chapter one, isn't he? God, the king of the universe, has made us his vice regents. He's clothed us in royalty. He's given us dominion over his creation, the animals of the earth, the birds of the sky, the creatures of the sea are all under our rule. Granted, it's a delegated rule, but what an honor. Of all the things in creation, God has chosen humanity to represent him, to be visible pictures of an invisible God. That means if you want to see God's majesty, you don't need to, to look up on a clear and starry night. You can look at the person next to you. You can look in the mirror. Turns out the questions in verse four are not asked in hopeless skepticism. So David isn't saying, oh, look how big the universe is. You must not even notice us, God. Our lives must be the last thing on your agenda. No, David's questions are asked in joyful wonder. He's like, wow, look how big the universe is. I can't believe you're mindful of us. I just, you care for me? Me? David can't believe it. Even notice how the tense of the verbs change in verse four. My wife pointed this out to me this week. I had to dust off the old Hebrew from seminary, but uh, the verbs uh, have the sense of ongoing action that occurs in the present. In other words, God is mindful of us right now. He continually cares for us. He doesn't get distracted or lose interest. Remember what I said earlier? Sin makes us seem big and God seems small. However, Psalm 8 does the opposite. It reveals how immense God is and how small we are. Yet it does more. Psalm 8 not only humbles us, it also exalts us. It shows us that despite our apparent insignificance, we are surprisingly significant to God. Not because we're great, but because he is great. And he loves to display his majestic splendor through things that are small and weak. Things like us. Paradoxically, sin can make us feel too significant. And it can make us feel insignificant. Sin can make us feel like the world revolves around us and it can make us feel like a waste of space. Psalm 8 is the cure for both extremes. It both humbles us and it exalts us. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you feel worthless and unimportant. Your life doesn't seem to matter, especially to God. Well, the objective reality is that you do matter. The majestic God is mindful of you. He notices you. 
Uh, the words that David uses here for man, son of man, these are generic terms for all of humanity. That means that, well, God sees how light, hard your life is. He sees it when you're up all night taking care of sick kids. He sees it when you're stuck in bed of depression. He's aware of the health problems, the relational conflict, the, the crippling anxiety, the crushing grief, the ongoing loneliness, the constant exhaustion. Whatever you're going through, God is not oblivious or disinterested. In fact, Psalm 8 says he cares for you. You know, sometimes it feels like God doesn't care for us. But the Bible's really clear that, that every good thing we receive in this life is from God. James 1, 17. It, it, it's not the result of random chance. It's not because you've been really wise or smart or hardworking. It's a result of God's providential care. When God causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall, it's because he cares for us. Matthew 5, 45. If you've ever eaten a meal or had a roof over your head or, or experienced gladness in your heart, it's because God has gifted you those things. Acts 14, 17. You have an intrinsic significance to God because he made you in his image. Yet there's an obvious tension in this psalm, isn't there? Like as glorious as all this sounds, it, it doesn't quite seem to match reality, does it? Psalm 8 describes humanity as exalted with glory and honor, exercising dominion over the earth. Yet when we look around the world, when we look at ourselves, it certainly feels otherwise. Like when I look in the mirror, the person staring back at me doesn't seem to be crowned with glory and honor. It certainly doesn't seem like we have all things under our feet. Wars, disease, disasters, death. Creation hardly seems subject to us. Clearly something has gone wrong. Humanity has obviously fallen very far from this exalted status. And the rest of the Bible helps us see why. So David takes us back to Genesis 1 in this psalm. However, Genesis 3 tells us that humanity, instead of receiving this crown of glory and honor from God, attempted to take God's crown of glory for themselves. Instead of exercising dominion as God's vice regents, we rebelled against him. Instead of receiving glory and honor from him, we sought those things apart from him. We wanted the majesty of our name to be proclaimed over all the earth. This is what the Bible calls sin. And, and we see in the Bible that sin has dehumanized us. Yes, we still bear the image of God. However, that image is now marred. It's, it's, it's distorted. We, we've become less than we were created to be. Because of sin, we, we've, we've taken this big God and we've shrunk him down to fit into our imaginations. We've become blind to his majestic splendor. We've, we've, we've magnified ourselves and we've placed ourselves at the center of the universe. But here's the amazing thing. God has not given up on us. He's still mindful of us. He still cares for us so much so that God decided to restore 
what's been lost, to, to fix what's been broken. What exactly is Psalm 8? At first, it appears to be this nostalgic hymn of a bygone era. But in reality, Psalm 8 is a prophecy. It's a promise about God, what God will do to restore and exalt humanity. The fulfillment of Psalm 8 begins in the New Testament. God decides to display his majestic power, and he does so by giving us a baby. He sends his son in the weakness of human flesh. And do you remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem shortly before being crucified? If you remember Jesus, he's the king. And he rides into Jerusalem on a humble donkey. And there are people there praising him. Children, in fact. And listen to what Matthew records in Matthew 21. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nurse and babies, you've prepared praise. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem, the children are singing his praises. They recognize him as the son of David, the king. <clears throat> but the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they take issue with them. They become angry and they complain to Jesus. They say, do you hear what these are saying? You need to put a stop to this nonsense, Jesus. They want Jesus to silence the children. But notice how Jesus responds. He responds by citing Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. Jesus applies this verse to himself. In other words, he is saying that he is the Lord of Psalm 8. He is the majestic creator of the stars. He, he's the one who formed UI Scooty with his fingers. But notice that Jesus doesn't quote the whole verse here. He knew the whole verse, and so did the religious leaders. The whole verse says, Out of the mouth of infants and nurse and babies, you've, you, you have prepared praise because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. By quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, Jesus was subtly criticizing the religious leaders of his day. He was calling them the enemies and foes of God. He was saying by rejecting him, they'd rejected God. That's Jesus' point, and they knew it. But rather than fall down on their faces in worship, they just doubled down. They became incensed. In fact, it would be these religious leaders who plotted Jesus' death. But just let's pause for a second. <clears throat> just notice how God reveals his majesty to the world. In this passage, he uses weak people, children, to silence his foes. And this is so unexpected. We'd expect God to show his majesty through things that are big and powerful. We'd expect him to at least reveal himself to the wise and the aged, the mighty and the influential. 
And that's exactly what the religious leaders thought. They didn't have a category for children recognizing God's king before them. But time and again, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. I read a wonderful story this week about a guy called Carl Barth, which you probably don't understand what I just said because of my accent. Carl, K-A-R-L, Carl, and Barth, B-A-R-T-H, Barth, okay? However you say it. Carl Barth, you can look it up later. Carl Barth, he was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Now, as evangelicals, we wouldn't agree with him on everything, but he was, this, he was a theological giant. So amongst other things, he wrote one of the longest systematic theologies ever produced. It was 13 volumes. Okay, I bet you're glad we're not looking at that in men's group next year. But, but in the early 19, 1960s, at Bath, he traveled to the United States. And amongst other things, he took part in a panel discussion at the University of Chicago's Rockefeller Chapel. And during the Q&A time, a young student stood up and he asked a question. He said, Professor Barth, could you summarize your entire life's work in a few words? And the audience gasped. What a ridiculous question. How is this giant of a theologian meant to summarize his entire life's work in just a few words? I mean, do you know how long-winded theologians are? When they can say something in five words, they'll say it in 20. Like, that's not a question to ask someone like Carl Barth. But interestingly, Barth only paused for a second, and this is how he answered. He said, yes. In the words of a song my mother taught me when I was a child, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, I love that story, not just because I sing that song to my kids nearly every night, but because it, it captures what we've been seeing in Psalm 8. And even in that passage from Matthew, you know, we might, we might tease out and nuance the great doctrinal truths of God's word, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You don't have to be a world-class scholar to confess that truth. The majestic God has prepared praise from the mouths of children. Now, this is amazing when you think about it. When toddlers lisp the gospel, they are displaying God's majestic power. He chooses the weak and vulnerable things of the world to proclaim his praises. More often than not, these are the kinds of people who recognize who God is. Remember what Jesus prayed in Matthew 11, in verse 25 to 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is really counterintuitive, right? If, we, if God wanted to display his majesty 
we would expect them to target Harvard University or the White House or Hollywood. You know, we'd expect them to find whoever has the most followers on social media or whoever's top of the Forbes richest list. But no, God targets the Sunday school class. He reveals himself during the toddler's bedtime. God chooses the weak things of the world to display his majestic power. That way he gets all the glory. What an encouragement this is to those of us that spend our time with children. Parents, children's ministry volunteers, teachers, mentors, youth leaders, aunts and uncles, grandparents. It, it doesn't seem like glorious work, does it? Cleaning up mess and wiping noses, correcting behavior, trying to teach the Bible to half-distracted kids, singing Jesus loves me for the gazillionth time. Do you ever wonder, does God, doesn't God have bigger things for me than this? Bigger things for me to be doing? We'll step back and see the bigger picture. God chooses the weak things of this world to display his majestic power. He silences his enemies through the praises of children. There's no more glorious work than helping children to worship God. And if you're a child this morning, I hope this actually encourages you. Like, do you ever wonder if God can use you for his glory? Even if you're just a child? Well, he can. And he does. When you believe the gospel, when you confess God's truth, when you sing his praises in song, the majestic power of God is actually in display in you. You don't have to wait until you're a grown-up to have an impact for the Lord. No, no matter how young you are this morning, no matter how simple your faith, no matter how incomplete your understanding, God has chosen people like you to silence his enemies and showcase his glory. He could have used something big and, and powerful like UI Scooty, but that would be too easy for God. The praises of children are more powerful than the largest star in the universe, and that is because God is a big God who can use the weakest things in the world to display his strength. But the problem of Psalm 8 still hangs over our heads. The author of Hebrews picks up on this problem in chapter two of his letter. And he shows us that Jesus is the solution. So in Hebrews two, beginning in verse five, we read this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, there's lots going on there. What, what's exactly, what exactly is he saying? 
He's basically saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. He's saying Jesus, the Son of God, took on human flesh. He condescended. He became one of us for a little while. He was made lower than the angels. And he was crowned with glory and honor. But here's the twist. He was crowned with glory and honor because of his death on the cross. In other words, God glorified Jesus through his death, through the weakness of the cross. He accomplished his greatest victory through defeat. Why did Jesus die? Well, the author of Hebrews says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus died as a substitute. He died the death that we should have died. He absorbed the wrath of a majestically holy God so that we could receive forgiveness for our sins. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No, he rose from the grave in victory and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And as Ephesians 2, 22 says, God has put all things under his feet. Again, a fulfillment of Psalm 8. All things are under Jesus' feet. Jesus has been given rule and dominion over everything. Satan, sin, and death, heaven and earth, everything in creation is under his rule. In other words, Jesus is humanity as it was supposed to be. He's the perfect human, the image of God par excellence. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where, where King David fell short, Jesus conquered. Where we ruin everything, Jesus came and he fixed everything. Now that's great for Jesus, but how does that relate to us? Well, here's the thing. If you are a Christian, if you have trusted in, in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then the Bible says you actually get to share in his victory that God promises to exalt you to a place of glory and honor. In the world to come, as the author of Hebrews puts it, you will reign with Christ forever and ever. Revelation 2, 22 verse 5. You'll never be overcome by grief or pain or suffering. You'll never be attacked by Satan, sin or death. No, in Christ, God will put all things under our feet. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, let me urge you to do that this morning. You do not want this majestically holy God as your enemy. You don't want to be, be you don't want to stand before the one who made UI Scooty with his fingers as a rebel. And the good news is that you actually don't have to. God has provided salvation in Jesus, and all you need to do is receive him as your Lord and Savior. But what if you have received Jesus? Well, I think Psalm 8 should both humble and exalt us this morning. So firstly, it should humble us. It's just so easy to think that we're somebody. To think that the universe revolves around us. To think that this is our story and everyone else, including God, are just supporting characters. I mean, isn't this why we grumble so much? Or get so angry or demand to be in control? Isn't this why we act selfishly with our time and our energy and our resources? Isn't this why we expect our will to be done? Sin just makes us seem really big and God seem really small. And so we expect him and others to meet our demands. But Psalm 8 gives us perspective. We are smaller than specks. What is man 
that God would be mindful of us? Who are we that he would care for us? Yet Psalm 8 also exalts us. Do you ever wonder if you matter? Do you ever feel insignificant? Do you ever think your life is meaningless, irrelevant, or unimportant? Let me tell you a story about a man named George. So in 2001, George decided to sponsor a poor seven-year-old Filipino boy called Timothy. He signed up through a non-profit Christian organization called Compassion International. I want to be your new pen pal, George wrote in his first letter. I'm an old man, 77 years old, but I love kids. I know we've not yet met. I love you already. I live in Texas. I'll write to you from time to time. Good luck. For years, George would exchange letters with Timothy. He'd send Timothy pictures of his dog, Sadie, share facts about Texas, update Timothy on where he traveled in the United States, Timothy, in response, would, would share photos and poems and drawings. And they developed a warm and affectionate relationship. I hope you won't get tired of writing to me, Timothy wrote at one point. But George never did. But as he was an old man, the sad day came when George died. Some years later, Timothy discovered the true identity of his pen pal. Turns out... Timothy's friend was former U.S. President George H.W. Bush. Now, as you can imagine, Timothy was speechless. Who was Timothy? A poor seven-year-old Filipino boy that the former U.S. President would be mindful of him. That George H.W. Bush would care for him. It, you know, if your pen pal was George, wouldn't you feel significant? Well, friends, Psalm 8 and the message of the Bible tells us something far better. It tells us that the king of the universe, the self-existent, self-sufficient Lord of the heavens, the majestic creator who formed the moon and stars with his fingers, he loves us. He is mindful of us. He cares for us so much so that he condescended, that he exchanged his throne for a cross, his crown of glory for a crown of thorns, and he suffered and died so that we might be restored, so that we might reign with him. That's how significant you are to God. You might feel small, overlooked and weak. You might feel like you have nothing to offer, but God displays his majestic power through human weakness. We see that in Psalm 8, and we see it in the cross of the Lord Jesus. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for your majestic splendor. Who are we that you would take notice of us? Who are we that you would send your son to pay for our sins? We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would the good news of Psalm 8 both humble and exalt us this morning? Would we repent of our puffed up pride? And would we also bask in the glory of being your children? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.